Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. It's early. It's early. It's it's early. My daughter's got a persistent cough. Yeah, it's going around. Everybody's got it. Yeah, it's it's, it's gotten productive, which is hard when you're a kid. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Is she taking expectorant? Not as much as I'd like. I, I am totally fine with drugging our daughter up, and my wife is kind of a prude about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. But there's a lot going around. You know, she goes to school, and uh, there everything's going around. They're, they're, Kids are hotbeds of sick. I like little sponges. Ugh. I throw out my sponges all the time. They're disgusting. Scott Simpson bought me some, what he considered some kind of magic Japanese sponge. He buys this for everybody. You went to that one store. Yeah, and I and it was it's great, except... <clears throat> Here's the thing. It's a white sponge. Yeah. Now if you're gonna if you're gonna make a sponge a color, don't make it white. No. That's a terrible color. The first time I used it, then it looked like I used it on something that was dirty, and then I had like a permanently dirty sponge. And you gotta live with that. I gotta live with that. I let, every time I go to the sink, I turn the water and I look down and here's this sponge that's like spoiled well and you know a lot of it's breeding i think like we're, we're not from wealthy families and uh, you know certain kinds of things in the home you use them until they're not usable anymore that's my background yeah but scott simpson you're saying when they use the sponge once and then they threw it out the window and the gardener took it away mm, i think that's where he is now absolutely <laughs> as, as you know he's extremely rich from making yeah, texts he is rich and uh but I think he's from a very modest background, too, with, with, with one exception. I don't know if he ever told you this. You know, his mom had a band. And what? They, yeah, and they had, they had uh, uniforms. Like a Navy marching band? I don't think so. I think it was a rock band. They, 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 they played, Yeah, and they, they played out, you know, that kind of playing out where you play at your friends' events. And I'm guessing they probably would just assume you just brought ice. I don't know. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so he was in an amazing situation that I would have killed for, which is he could just walk downstairs with his pals. And there was a hole in their basement. There was like a whole setup where you could just walk down there and like play instruments. Well, now here, this, this, this brings me to an interesting uh, internal dilemma that I have. Which is that I went to a pop music conference last weekend where I was the keynote speaker. Wow. And it took place in Bellingham, Washington. <laughs> yeah, I like where this is going. And, I, and so I, I prepared this speech, blah, blah, blah speech. But I got to the pop conference early in contravention of my normal method of showing up <laughs> to an event one second before I take the stage. That's better for security reasons, if nothing else. <laughs> I went. I went instead, and I attended this. You think pop Malcolm pop. X hung out in the green room for five hours? <laughs> no, no, he did not. No, he walked in, and that was the beginning of. He the, sat in the, the back where he could see the door. So I go to this thing, and I go to all these panels, and it's happening in Bellingham, Washington. And I, sh I assure to you, I assure you, rather, I do not assure to you. It's early. Mm. <coughs> mm. I uh, every one of these panels is blowing my mind and it's blowing my mind primarily because they're talking about pop music and pop music business but there is an element of like the the, the expectation of the panelists was that they would address some issue they would address the issue of social justice <laughs> they would address the issue of community building and inclusiveness as they were answering questions about how do i get my band signed 
and how do I, uh, you know, like how do I promote my record via social media? But how do I? But also, how do I uh, further the cause of social justice and increase diversity in, in pop bands or in, in in like the music scene in general? And and there was and there was a predictable amount of like sort of like mild college like b- bubbling hostility in, uh, that goes along with both the askers and the answerers of questions like that. And the whole, you know, the whole day, the premise was like, um, yeah, hi. Um, I'm just wondering, um, why are there not more inupiate rock bands? <laughs> Has anybody really thought about that? And like, maybe we should all look at our, our playlists and see like, that like we don't have any inupiate bands and is that a problem i don't know i'm not sure what my question is hmm. and the, and the, the person that's on the panel is like um like someone who works in the music business and they're like uh uh i don't uh you know like 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 absolutely flabbergasted at what how to try and answer that question well can i ask a question yeah. the the um were you aware and were the other panelists aware that social justice would be a focus of the Bellingham Pop Conference? <laughs> or how, how, how prepared were you in your remarks, for example? Yeah, well, my remarks had no element of social, social justice consideration in them. <laughs> and hate so, crime, hate crime. I was up there. I was getting ready to give a keynote speech at this conference that was basically a hate crime. <laughs> and so on the fly, I threw my notes in the garbage can and I said, I should have recycled it. <laughs> I, I did. In fact, I did in fact recycle it. And, you know, and truth be told, I was using Merlin man three by five cards, oh. which I never used to do, but I do it now in, in homage to you. Thank you. So, so by the time I got to my, by the time we arrived at my keynote speech, I had been to 10 panels and Every one of them had this kind of like, we need to search our souls to see um, how we can make it easier for everybody in the world to become a rock star. And mm. and by that, we don't mean like uh, how to make it easier in the world for everybody to be a rock star. And then also, by the way, how do I get my band on the radio? And so I got up at, at that the... Seems, I mean, just to be honest, I mean, being a rock star seems pretty phallocentric and patriarchal well don't you think i mean shouldn't shouldn't we all be equal i i can't i i I could not speak to that and 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 part of it was um just that like being a rock star really i mean that's really that's really still a thing that we do (laughs) but but i wanted to tune your guitar at this point (laughs) but i wanted to i wanted to address it because there were there were actually some very thoughtful panelists and 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 in general, you know, I I feel like that I feel like that dialogue of like, um, hi, yeah, uh, I just feel like people with allergies should be allowed to play Coachella, but there's a lot of dust in the air. <laughs> so how do how do we make Coachella accessible to people with allergies? Like, I feel like that kind of question is is almost reflexive in like students now, where they're not invested in in the question they are sitting in they're sitting in a lecture hall and they're thinking how can i 
like how do I phrase a question that is going to be a um, that's going to be kind of a mic drop? Like nobody thought of that. Like I I found a I found a, a, a an underrepresented group of people that nobody thought of, and now you're all wishing that you had thought of people uh, so with allergies at Coachella. It's it's kind of, it's, it becomes a way of speaking truth to power. Yeah, even exactly. when there's not that much power there, and probably a, a fairly scant amount of truth. Yeah, that, and there isn't, and 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 it has become a scenario where people are not actually seeking equality anymore for anybody. It is just a, it's just a a game of like, I have. I have exposed the inequality, and so gold star for me. I asked a question, and now I can go back to to Facebooking. And the professor, the professor in every case is forced by by the by the energy or by the by the convention that he has to he or she has to consider that question legitimately. You know what I mean? Like the professor, the professor is not in a position to say, you know what, that's a, that's an irrelevant question or, or, or rather, rather the answer, which is, is ultimately true, which is it is impossible to make the world completely accessible to everyone. It is simply impossible. And so every question phrased within the, you know, within the umbrella of our end game is to make everything absolutely even and fair is is the same question basically and it doesn't matter whether you are saying inupiates or people with allergies or people with social anxiety disorder it is the same question over and over which is how do we make the world completely fair and we cannot so what we can do is aspire in certain places but it isn't but the game is not to just keep keep finding a a, a smaller and smaller aperture you know yeah Anyway, so I get up at the pop conference and I say, the, the reality about making art is that the best art is made in reaction to restriction or limitation. The, 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 the culture in Prague in the 70s and 60s produced a whole generation of playwrights and artists that were working in reaction to the regime. And as soon as the regime fell, all of that art, I mean, name a Czech playwright now. You can't really, because who knows? There's I mean, one, and I think he passed. Well, there was that one that became the president of the country. You know, right. that, is, that is the role that art played at, 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 that, that came up in a repressive regime. Now there are probably one million Czech playwrights and none of them stand out. And the reality is we have made making pop music incredibly easy. There is no difficulty at all. Anyone of any age or gender can do as much pop music as they want. But it has not improved the quality of pop music, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like there are a million bands now and none of them are good because <clears throat> having a barrier to entry, having it be difficult is what makes people make good art. They make good art almost exactly because they are experiencing the challenge of being forced to make art as, as their primary voice. You know, it well, is, the- I mean, it's like making a diamond. Like you don't make a diamond by, by spreading out the soil and bringing it iced tea, mm. you know, and, and you, there has to be a certain 
for, for that passion to come out, there has to be, yeah, maybe there's a reaction, maybe there's influences, but there has pressure. to be so, some kind of a, a crucible, pressure. I think in most cases, but, but like the, the whole thing is so misdirected. I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Like if, so you're going to create social justice by coming in and talking about pop music in a room. I, I can't even, I can't even begin to address yeah. that. But, but, but the other thing is like, it, are, are they are they people in Bellingham? I mean, so I'm guessing it was an extremely diverse audience of people who had the time to come in and go to a pop music conference about uh, social justice. I bet it was in- extraordinarily diverse. There was the there was the white kid that was making hip hop. Mm-hmm. There was the mm, white twist. kid that was making I don't know. There was a there was a half Asian guy, but he was on a panel. Anyway, the 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 the, the point of all that was I have been I have been wrestling since the time my daughter was born. With the fact that I have a house full of instruments. And when I was growing up, I bought my first guitar at a... Well, I bought my first guitar from my sister's friend who bought it at a swap meet. She, uh, My sister had a friend who... Uh, she, she and her friend were going to start an all-girl Duran Duran cover band. And my sister bought a keyboard and her friend Tracy bought a guitar. And they set up in the basement... And they put their fedoras on and their scarves <laughs> and their pirate shirts. And they put on Rio and plugged in their keyboard and their guitar and and went blank, 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 blank. And they realized that they couldn't play these instruments and and didn't have a real interest in learning an instrument. They just wanted to be in a Duran Duran cover band. Right. And so they they stacked the instruments in the corner where they sat gathering dust and I walked past them every day and looked at them. And at a, about a month later, I, I said to the two girls, I was like, Hey, um, you guys gonna, gonna do anything with those? And Tracy sold me her guitar for 25 bucks. And my sister, of course, out of spite said, don't touch my keyboard. And it sat in the corner. She went off to ski. <laughs> it sat in the corner. She never touched it. I never touched it. It had an inch of dust on it eventually. And then at one point, she owed me some money. And I was like, I'll take that keyboard. And she was happy to have it go. So I ended up with all the Duran Duran cover band instruments. I, I, don't, I don't want to derail you from the daughter thing, because I'd love to talk about that. But there's, there's this other part of this that obsesses me in the things that I think about which is on the one hand sort of trying to solve the wrong problem and how, oh, how, how, how the best thing that you can do for somebody if you've had experience, similar experience, is to help them understand that as noble or as theoretically interesting as your goals are, if you're trying to solve the wrong problem, you're going to be perma-screwed. Because, mm-hmm. And then you can just dig in further and get, get deeper and deeper and matter and matter and demonstrate more and more. But, you know, a theme... I think t- our entire culture is trying to solve the wrong problem now. Well, well, they sure are. There's like three problems with this. And then the second one is that, you know carpenters who make a lot of furniture don't go to conferences and ask about social justice and carpentry. They go out and they build lots of stuff and then they try to be decent human beings. And they understand that those are, are, are pretty different things. If you don't get your hands around it, you're never going to solve uh, the right problem. Do, well, do you know? I was persuaded. There was one, one panelist who said something very interesting, you know, because I am, we, we, we constantly hear about, institutionalized inequality and and for people that are our age we've been hearing about it our whole our whole adult lives i mean this was a this was a concept that was 
introduced to us first but during the civil rights movement where where we we had to be educated to the fact that just because now blacks had the right to vote did not necessarily mean that they had equal opportunity in the in the country and it was a it was a process of education of people who had never experienced deprivation that they had to learn like oh i see what you mean if you grow up in a place where there is you know where it where racism is institutionalized even if on the surface of things everybody has the same rights you really are having a very different experience of living in america and it is a tremendous it does present a tremendous disadvantage right so that was a process of education that happened in america over the course of our our whole lives it's been happening and as time has gone on that franchise of disenfranchisement has been extended so then it was then we oh, had, you mean like like how you can take the um the, the vocabulary and the sensibilities of of really deeply systematically oppressed peoples and then uh, apply it to people with bikes right but but when 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 the when the uh you know the women's rights movement happened it was a it was a similar process of like oh wait a minute you mean even even well to do women who live uh, comfortable lives in the city are also right disenfranchised wow that's a new that's a new mental technology i and never took, i never would have thought of that right yeah and it took years to sink in and the, again that happened throughout the course of our lives and and so then yeah then the franchise kept getting extended until now it's like people with people with allergies people with uh myopia people with social anxiety disorder people with whatever and they are they are you know making themselves equivalent to to people who have who actually struggle well you know who hates that is people who have actually struggled mm. well and also me mm. i hate it too but <laughs> But there's a tendency, I think, there's a tendency among among everybody, and in particular, uh, dare I say it, among those of us who uh, who are constantly reminded that we benefit from the structure, which is to say, white men, we benefit from the from the inequality, and we benefit from it unconsciously. And there, there is a tendency on our part to say, oh, my God, we've been hearing about this our whole lives. Can we, can we stop fighting the same battle? But I had a, I had a very interesting, or I, I heard of an interesting thing on one of the panels, which was a, a thoughtful woman who said, you know, when I was in fourth grade and I joined band, I wanted to play the trumpet. And I was guided by the hand <laughs> over to the clarinets and flutes yeah <clears throat> and as she said it i was like well of course of course you were the clarinet and the flute is a girl's instrument and the trumpet is a boy's instrument and it it was a it was the most resonant uh example of 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 this kind of like ingrained institutionalized gender role based inequality mm-hmm. that I, that I had heard in years you know because i because you're you're so used to being polemicized about it and people 
talking about like uh, like uh, a friend of mine came home and said you know quoted the oft quoted statistic like women are paid 72 cents on the dollar and i said is that true at your at your office or do you feel like you are paid 72 cents to the dollar that your comparably educated and talented co-workers paid and she said what no of course not right and i said does anyone you know uh, work in an environment where that is the case and she said no and i said so what what is i mean i understand the statistic but but when you say it when you say it when you come home and say like women are paid 72 cents on the dollar it is a you say it with with a considerable amount of pique you are angry about it but it isn't something that you or anybody you know is personally experiencing. So who are those people who are being paid 72 cents on the dollar? If you guys, if you, if you are making the equivalent of your male counterparts, that means in order for that statistic to be true, there must be women somewhere in America who are being, being paid 30 cents on the dollar. Right. And I wonder if there really, if, if there, if there are two people working the same job and one of them is because of her gender really being paid that much, or if it's a statistic that has been massaged and repeated so many times that we take it as uh, we take it as given without examining it i don't know where suffice to say that i walked away from this experience both like kind of newly curious about this trumpet uh, um trumpet flute trumpet discrimination the trumpet discrimination and also like and also my feeling was reinforced that 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 no one is no one is really talking about like what's the what is the long-term plan for this movement that has become an institution now it is a revolutionary movement to extend equal rights to all that is that is a, a marxist argument ultimately to each according to his need from each according to his ability and we are we are very happy to fight little tiny battles about it all day every day my twitter feed is full of people saying well there's another example of a war on women and and then I click through the link and it's like something that just is, it's, is just an interesting news article, not particularly an example of, of a war on women. But I mean, you know, there's just two parts to this that, that drive me a little bananas. I mean, the, the, the meta part is I really, I really resent uh, being saddled with the idea that like, because I think it's silly to live inside of these abstractions, I don't think that these are important things. I think they're important enough. If you want to fucking raise, why don't you go ask for one? Because, hmm. uh, yeah, we can point to a million statistics about other people. We can even point to statistics about ourselves. But, you know, at the one, on the one hand, I, I understand why you would want to adopt that, that attitude because it can be very powerful and can help, help bring people together. But the second part is it always – it so frequently seems to be about – like legislating a change of heart in people that aren't you. It right. seems to be oh, all God. about like, well, let's sit around in this room and set an agenda for how we can make other people better, you know? And, and like in both of those cases, a change of heart in someone who's not you. Yeah. 
That's that is a perfect that is a perfect description of it. Well, if you if you want social justice, why don't you get off your ass? Like, why don't you stop treating it as a problem that needs to be solved by a panel of people in pop music? And why don't you go out and do something? And if, if you want the raise, ask for it. You can, if you want to still like hang your head and, and talk about how like, you know, uh, oppressed you are, that's certainly something you're, you're free to do. But, you know, we've come a long way from the 1960s. If you go and you, if you, if you feel like you're getting 72 cents on the dollar, ask for a fucking raise. That's your, that's who you are. If you want to be, go empower yourself, you know, get out there and do it. And if you can find a way to bring social justice and pop music, why don't you leave the fucking conference and go out there and do it? Get your hands around the problem, learn which parts of it you can do something about and quit worrying about how to change the rest of the world because it doesn't work. Yeah, the the I, I think that is the I think that is ultimately the thing that that is the string that resonates most deeply is because if enough women do that, then it's not going to be a problem anymore. Well, ultimately, all these questions are <clears throat> are questions that are resolved when you raise your kids right, and when you raise your kids to think differently and behave differently in the world, and it really is a it really is a thing where you you change your own heart, you evangelize yourself, you are the primary mission field, and then your family. And really, the, I, I had a, a very interesting exchange of, a few years ago on Twitter where I where I asked somebody, I kind of asked the the group this exact question: like, can you, through application of law, really really change the hearts and minds of a people or mm-hmm. are you you know i mean i think in america we see a lot of the division that we have now like the clear division between the two halves of our nation a lot of it is the product of trying to use prescriptive law to change the hearts and minds of half the population. Wait, what, and, a, what, a, what a legacy of uh, eff- efficacy we have for that. <laughs> yeah. So we keep saying, I mean, the abortion rights issue is a thing that we have been, we've been fighting this battle, a, a bloody cultural battle that takes up all of our, you know, it takes up the whole center of our national dialogue. And, the reality is that the that Roe versus Wade was a badly decided piece of law, and that's why it's constantly under assault, because they think they can beat it. They think it's bad law, and they think they have a You're shot. Talking about the the anti-abortion people, yeah, the the anti-abortion people think they can beat it because it's it is bad law, and it's just a matter of time before the right combination of supreme court justices decide to look at it you know in the narrow confines of the of the legal decision and overturn it not be not on a moral basis but overturn it because it's you know because it was kind of a shitty piece of legal thinking mm-hmm. but you know the reality i think is that if roe versus wade was overturned there would be there would be an immediate and mad rush to write new law in its place that was better. I mean, the uh, the best thing that could happen to the abortion rights movement is that Roe versus Wade be overturned because the next piece of law would be ironclad. I mean, I feel like the 
I feel like the arc of social justice is long, or the, or the arc of history is long, but it points towards social justice. I think that's absolutely true. I think that, that it is inevitable that we are becoming more liberal and more inclusive and more accessible to everyone. Right. But, but we keep trying to, we keep trying to use the, the, the lever of law to bring all these people that are, that are, you know, that really all we can do is kind of wait for them to die and wait, wait for their kids, <laughs> wait for their kids to approve gay marriage. You know, that right. we could have made gay marriage legal by force of law 25 years ago. And it would have, it would have sparked a, an armed insurrection in the South. But we suffered those 20 years and now it's happening and it's happening not because we not because the law forced people and not because we really changed anybody's minds but just because the young people came up and they liked MTV and they watched Sheena Queen of the Desert and they're like oh yeah that seems reasonable <laughs> and they're just attitudes changed and this is the you know i remember being very persuaded by by Malcolm X and by uh Martin Luther King, when they said, you know, all we're ever told by Whitey is that we need to wait. It's not time yet. We need to wait. And we're, we're done waiting. We're tired of waiting. That, and the time is now. And, I, and, and that was very persuasive, and it produced, it produced real action and real motion that hadn't, you know, uh, wh where culturally we were stalled in this weird separate but equal miasma. But there, but that mentality, like when you say, "Well, you know," after after fifty thousand years, like maybe maybe give it another ten. Right. When you when you say that now, when when you're talking about sort of any kind of kind of sea change in the culture, you say that to a group of people, and they're they're so quick to say, like, "That's what every white man says." Wait. Well, think about going back to asking for a raise, just as a practical example. You know, if you, if you, um, it's obviously it's, it's more related to your own merits, but if you've ever had a job, you know that there's some really good times to ask for a raise and some terrible times to ask for the raise. And if you really do want a raise, I, I really, this is not completely related, but if you want to get a raise and it means a lot to you, you have to prepare for that. You have to have, you have to know all of the facts and understand them in context with reality. And the truth is, there are better and worse times to ask for a raise. But if you are prepared, when that time does come, you're going to have a much better chance, whether or not, like, no matter how much you want it, doesn't matter. What matters is whether you're prepared and, and then in context can ask it at the right time where somebody goes, well, of course I'll give you a raise. I'm not stupid. But, but you know, but the fact just doesn't kind of, kind of doesn't, it, it, it can matter how much you want it. And certainly there have been things that changed, but, but I'm with you. And, and, you know, there's two times that I, I feel a little bit peaked uh, from, you know, again, things like Twitter, but also just the whole world, like obviously during sports events. But the other thing is during elections, because every election or anytime there's some kind of political tumult going on, everybody's picked their side. You see, at least in my Twitter feed or amongst my friends, I see everybody locking arms to make fun of the other side, to browbeat them, to call them stupid, and to talk about all the ways that they're wrong, 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 you make wrong wrong. And 
this is this is maybe really reductive, but this is how I look at it. I will ask you exactly one question. When is the last time that somebody calling you stupid and saying how little you knew changed your mind? Because people can sit around all day long and make fun of Fox TV and shoot fish in a conservative barrel. But I, honestly, if you're so goddamn smart, when is the last time that you sat and watched Fox News and heard about how stupid you are and you went, you know what, I am kind of stupid? I don't think people do that. I don't think yeah. it's effective. And all it does, I mean, on a larger scale, obviously, it just makes us more, you know, uh, we, we start to see the other side as inhuman. And as soon as you see that quote unquote other side to begin with, well, I mean, you know, we're, we're all kind of in the same pot. And, and the more we try and find some kind of a common ground, and certainly that's what politicians do, the better off we are. But all, all I'm trying to say is like, you know, in addition to this being an incredibly complex problem with a million different angles, I don't think you change hearts and minds through either legislation or by making fun of people. Yeah. You know, and you can sit, you can sit around a room all day long and, and come up with some kind of bill of rights for people who play mandolins, but I'm not sure that's going to make black people any better off when it comes time to go to Bonnaroo. Mm, whoa. There's a lot to unpack in that last sentence. I'm angry. There's a thing on our. There was a thing on uh, the you know local uh, or the you know California public radio thing today that was really got me thinking. I think it's related, hmm. and it has to do with the aging population. The last, the oldest of, the oldest of baby boomers turned. Excuse, I guess the youngest of baby boomers turned like 65 this year. The point being that oh. there are fewer and fewer – there are more and more people who are going to need benefits or want benefits that they have coming to them and fewer and fewer people that are going to be able to supply it. Right. And you know what compounds that hugely is that due to things like the bad, like bad economies and things like legislation, we don't have enough immigrants coming here anymore. And mm -hmm. we don't have enough illegal immigrants coming here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, everything that we did to keep immigrants from coming here – through, through legislation and so forth, is now harming California. Because right. in addition to having a lot less people to, to, to sit there in the sun and pick lettuce that no white person wants to pick, mm -hmm. now we also have this bigger problem of we're not going to be able to pay for all of these things. So, I mean, to me, there's unintended consequences to all these sorts of things, but it really comes down to getting off your ass, get off Twitter, and go do something about it. <laughs> if it matters to you, why don't you do something about it? You know, Martin Luther King did not sit around typing in 140 characters and try to change the world. It's just, you know, you're not invested in that. You're invested until the next, the change of the color of your icon. I'm getting angry now. And, well, and yeah. you get and all, the thing, the you thing get all is pissed I'm off until the worried. next thing comes along. I'm less worried about people, you know, the chattering classes on Twitter. and, and, and But they think they're helping, John. Well, they, I know, they think but I don't, they're contributing to the body politic. But I don't care about them. The, no. the, 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 real, the, the, the real difference that is, that, uh, that's happening among people who really are off their asses and doing things um, is that you know the, the 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 fundamental liberal project has been since the since the fifties, but but really since the sixties, to imagine that we are creating a utopia in America, and there are a lot of people who who don't want it or don't get it, and we're going to help them along. By forcing them to open their minds, we'll, we'll, we'll try education. You know, well, we'll, we'll try educating them, but if it doesn't work, we got, we got a big hammer here. Yeah, and and through through a lot of like great society style, like sort of big projects like busing and housing projects, and you know, a, a legislative <laughs> approach and a social engineering approach. 
liberalism set about to create a utopia by dragging people along, kicking and screaming. And not, not, not everybody, of course, but, but dragging the recalcitrant people along. Mm-hmm, the stragglers. And, and, you know, there was a moment sometime in the 70s, and I, and I sense this, you know, I said this moment where crackpot conservatism became mainstream was there was this there was just this this overflow point right around the time that that governments were saying well you know you can no longer have an all male uh smoking club like you and your buddies started this club you sit around smoking cigars but it is yeah. discriminatory that you're that you have a requirement that it be all dudes so you have to open the doors and at the at the moment where we we reached down into the culture and started saying in general you can no longer you can no longer be just some dudes in a in a club you have it's against the law now um that was the that was the personal moment i think where conservatism became the ascendant movement because there are just a lot of people in the world who instinctively do not want to be told who they can hang out with and it isn't a the, the, their response wasn't that coming from a place of of racism or sexism it was coming from a deeply personal place where some suddenly somebody with a clipboard somebody like that epa agent in ghostbusters <laughs> an, an, an that o- guy <laughs> an officious uh, you know government employee with a clipboard was saying venkman shut it down and and people just like the people who tell the farmers they can't build skyscrapers, right? Mm. Remember, no, no. Remember your thing about land rights and the whole oh, idea. Right, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's always somebody. And the thing, the thing about the the thing about the land rights question is, it is persuasive to me because we are all we are all using the same water and the same mm-hmm. sewage. And likewise, the 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 uh, the men's club argument is persuasive in the sense that we are all using the same water and the same sewage. But this was the moment where where people who already felt like the this liberal project was pushing them against their will, you know, with their heels dug in, pushing them toward a world that they couldn't see and didn't understand. And then it became a it became, it got personal. It, it came down to their street exactly, where it was like, wait a minute, now I can't even. Now I can't even hire my brother-in-law because yeah, it's one thing for California to, to come up with a bunch of fruity stuff or Vermont or whatever, but now you're you really are literally in my backyard. You're you're down you're down here like telling me how to do my business, right? And from you know from up high, liberalism said, "Well, this is how it has to happen. We have to go around like that scene in Doctor Zhivago, where we where all of a sudden post revolution." Dr. Zhivago and his family who used to live in a 30 room mansion are now 
there's a knock on the door and there's a woman with a clipboard and she is moving other dis, you know, she's moving families into their home. And increasingly the Javagos are now they're just living on one floor of their home. And pretty soon the whole family is living in one room curtained off with sheets. Sounds a lot like Warsaw. <laughs> no, right? Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And, and, and the premise is like, how could you Zhivagos have been living in such luxury while people were poor on the street? You know, uh, people were dying in the cold and now everybody is living together in a rat's warren in your Hope old, to the collective of equality <laughs> in your old family mansion. Congratulations. Now, you know, we have arrived at a, at, at yeah, Marxist equality, which is squalor for squalor for all. But, but that, you know, feeling, trying to feel sympathy, it's very hard now to hear somebody from Arkansas or somebody even from Seattle who is, who has a, a large Dodge truck that maybe, maybe has some truck nuts <laughs> hanging from the back bumper. But those are illegal in California now. <laughs> they are. Listening to them. You know, bitch and moan with a with a ton of vitriol about how Obama is coming to force them to to uh, accept medical insurance. It's very hard for the liberal sensibility to not feel like, what is the matter with you, crybabies? My God, like man up! But but the fact is that they are expressing they are expressing a discontent that's forty years old mm-hmm. that is really a discontent with the with the with the premise of the whole liberal project which is that y- we are headed toward a utopia and you are coming whether you like it or not and there's something that's kind of authentic about that whether i agree with it or not there's this basic thing that i i've said this before but i really believe there aren't that many people who think they're stupid I think most people think other people are stupid. Very few people say, you know what? I'm really stupid and need people to massage my understanding of the world in such a way that I can be a good citizen. Well, the key thing about being ignorant is that you are first primarily ignorant of how stupid you are. Well, that's the difference between, to me, the difference between stupidity and, and ignorance is ignorance can be cured if, if you, you know, can learn that. But, but you, you're on to something. I think, which is that people, I think, and this is, I might be shooting fish in a liberal barrel here. I might be going to the Whole Foods barrel, but you know, it's funny to me. It's an how, olive barrel. Oh, sorry, it's artisanal. <laughs> it's amazing to me, like how many people, you know, you live in Pack Heights, you live in Berkeley, and you're you're very very comfortable in your surroundings by and large, and you're you're more than happy to institute busing. You're more than happy to institute, you know, all, whatever public housing. Well, you know what? Can we have your house for public housing? Can we bus your kid across town? Is that, is that cool with you? Are you really are you really super into that? Now, some, and some people are. I have, I have really good friends here in town that moved here, and it's frustrating. They moved here specifically to be part of the great San Francisco experiment. They, right. they used public transit. They, they they have their kid go to the school that like gets assigned to them, and and that's it's difficult sometimes. But their values around that are to me much more authentic than than, than people who are going in and uh, you know astroturfing polls on CNN to make sure the right side wins. Because yeah. I don't think, I've said, again, I don't think you care about something until you've sacrificed for it. And if you care that much about all that stuff, like why don't you put your money where your mouth is or put your life where your mouth is? Because it's, 
if you agree, if you just stipulate for one week that you're stupid and you need other people to tell you what to do, your eyes open to how the world operates. And you see that there's much more to this persuasion of utopian or otherwise of trying to get somewhere better than from telling people that they're stupid and need to be hammered into complicity or into, you know, submission. I just wish that, you know, liberalism is very self-reflective in some ways, narrow corridors, but there is not a historic self-reflection that applies to what we've been doing since World War II. And if, if we were able as a culture to look back and say, um, we tore down all of the tenement buildings on the Lower East Side and we built massive brick housing projects and we did it because we were we were we were solving all these problems hygiene problems we were we were solving the the incredible mess the unruly mess of downtown new york that was full of immigrants and we couldn't and nobody you know everybody was just wading through sewage and and there were there was a watch shop next to a hat shop how can this stand we're going to we're going to bulldoze it we're going to mm-hmm. bulldoze block after block and we're going to build these neat and tidy housing projects this giant government undertaking and we're going to provide a clean and secure neighborhood environment for people and it's going to uplift the people but the, that we can social engineer that by design yeah and to look at that now you see like, oh my God, what a misguided approach. Like the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago became the most dangerous place in the universe. A place where the police... I was driving through Chicago one time in the in the mid-80s and I was advised by a policeman not to stop at red lights. Mm. <laughs> and I said, message received. Like he said, don't, just don't through this part of the city i would not i would not wait for the light to change you know we had this neat idea that we would find a way to take all of the desperate people with nothing to lose and then stack them up like cordwood well and and <laughs> in a place where we we did not have we had the mandate to tear down the old neighborhood and build this but we did not have the mandate to fund it right we did not have the mandate to 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 follow through on that which is you that you don't just you don't just tear down people's neighborhoods and put them in high rises and then automatically they have become philosopher scholars (laughs) like you then also have to have the money to make those schools in that neighborhood the best schools there are and have job training programs and the and it does not work if if you are also experiencing a nationwide decline in manufacturing and you know you can't you can't do that and then also close all the factories and but 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 we are it is very hard for us to look back at that and say that was a liberal project with the with the end goal of creating a utopia and what it created was a blight and it created it created in a lot of ways it precipitated the death of the inner city that took we're still, 30, we're still we're still trying to recover from we're still trying to recover from that's right and you know the story of detroit is that when they were building the interstate highway system, 
they slammed the interstate right through the heart of of Detroit's most vibrant black neighborhood, and they just they just cut it in half and and killed it in in one fell swoop, and it it produced so much anger in the city of Detroit in the in what was at the time you know a very vibrant and alive black community of music and art that you know Detroit went through went through 40 years where it was recreational to go burn down abandoned houses. <laughs> like that was something that people did on weekends. Like let's go burn some houses because they had lost, they had, they had completely lost their feeling that the city belonged to them. And I'm talking about everybody in Detroit, you know, because of this, what was, what was eventually, or what was ultimately, I mean, I'm not saying the interstates were were just a liberal project. They were an Eisenhower and, but they would also support industry. Project. It would make make it easier for people in the suburbs to get to their jobs. Oh yeah, it was a it was a big it was a big social engineering concept. Like here's what we're going to do: that instead of being stuck in traffic all day, wending your way into this little neighborhood where the hat shop is next to the watch shop, we're going to just tear it all down and we're going to build a big spaceport out of brick. And we're <laughs> These go- guys need some modernity. <laughs> they really do. We need to we need to bring some brutalism in here and and, and it is going to improve every the quality of everybody's life. And 50 years from now everybody is going to be dancing like in those Buck Rogers television shows in the early 80s where people are holding on to uh that they're holding <laughs> Holding on Don't to they like rib- pleasure balls or something. Yeah, they're holding on to ribbons and pleasure balls, and they're dancing around <laughs> to Brian Eno music. <laughs> and that's going to be the future if we just get rid of all this old of of, of if we just get rid of the center of the city where people ha- are living as people naturally do, which is frankly <sighs> like mud pigs. <laughs> but but that's who we are, you know. So I wish that I wish that liberalism had the capacity as a as a as a as a forward thinking uh like ideology to do a little bit of backward looking and say we have we have tried to engineer a utopia multiple times where education and government action enlightened the people and and once it was patiently explained to them that equal rights for all was was beneficial and economically like advantageous everybody got it and then we were living in a we were living in a future world where all the children are mochaccino colored and we sit around on the steps of our pantheon and read Aeschylus plays to one another <laughs> And that is the America that we hope for and inspire to. But every but and and, and frankly, a lot of things a lot of things we've tried have worked great. But but the, the the resentment that you feel in America about big government telling you what to do is that there are people that really were and 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 what's amazing is that the people that were most affected by the liberal big, big government projects. They are still Democrats. It's the it's the people that were kind of on the outside looking in and going, you know, the people that got out to the suburbs that looked back at the city and said, you know, liberalism is bankrupt. And when I when I think about it that way, I have a I have I still I still have I have a very hard time 
being yelled at by conservatives, but I do sympathize with their, with, with some of the evidence that they're able to, to muster that like this, this, this mentality, which is we are coming into your homes and we're going to explain to you why you're wrong. And then we're going to deprive you of your, of what you consider to be your rights. Mm-hmm. And it's in service of the greater good. And you're going to like it or not. Doesn't matter. Go fuck yourself. Oh, also God is dead. <laughs> Woo. Free pot for everybody. <laughs> and, like I see, I see why they're, been out of shape i totally do i you know i, it, uh, uh, I want to get back to your keynote in a minute if, if we can right. but you know it, it reminds me i i think i as somebody from the north in uh you know the literal and figurative sense i don't think i really understood a lot about the civil war until i met my friend richard and read some faulkner and i got oh. a really different point of view into it um and i, I started to really was that well, yeah, because we think in the we're, in the north we are taught that uh, that everybody in the south is like Bo and Luke Duke. Well, well, right, and and I mean, my understanding of it is that part of part of what made things so complicated in the you know beginning to middle part of the nineteenth century was that you know slavery. It would be glib to call it a MacGuffin, but it's certainly worth mentioning that it's it wasn't just slavery. It was a matter of telling us how to live. Like whether you like or don't like slavery, it ends up being germane. But the the deeper issue is we didn't. I guess it seems like the North maybe. I don't know. I'm not a historian, but it seems to me that they the North didn't fully accept the extent to which people in Virginia were going to be put off by us telling these, as you say, these you know people from Scotland who are really used to autonomy and 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 they've got their own mature culture. We, up, we we may not like their mature culture. Uh they're doing what what I would personally consider awful awful things. And but at the same time, y- y- we're going down there and like we're we're really poking the bull in the eye by not acknowledging what we were facing from people who thought that their culture was fine just the way it is, thank you very much. And and we make it about slavery because it should be about slavery. I'm sure glad it's gone. But at the same time, one reason that was such a bloody war is that they did not it, – it, it, in some ways it wouldn't have mattered. It was certainly big to their economy. But they wouldn't have wanted people telling them how to make their tea. You just don't tell people in the South what to do. Mm. And, you know, and, and I, I think that's still, I think that's still true today. I mean, if, if we don't, and I just want to be clear, I'm not saying slavery was a great idea, but like, that's the problem. We can't have these conversations. It's a constant production of third rails about all the things that are off limits because we've all decided that we understand this story. And I'm just here to say, I don't think we always understand that story and our, our, our amount of certainty about how right we are, how wrong everybody else is, and how much they need to be rehabilitated to our learned point of view is an affliction, especially on the, on the left and right coasts, that we really feel like we need to sweep in and, 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 and set these folks straight. You know, Bobby yeah. Kennedy goes, he goes to Kentucky, and he, he literally cries because he sees what poverty people are living in. But you know what? He didn't, he didn't go back and uh, and post things on Facebook. He understood that welfare is an incredibly complex problem to solve and it's going to take more than just this one angle to even begin to fix this problem. And I, yeah. I I admire that. You know, he didn't just sit around and he didn't just take photos of poor people and come back and show it to everybody in Hyannisport. He did something about it. And but he also acknowledged that it was very complicated. 
Yeah, he got shot too. That's a really good point. So, so the, the 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 thing about the thing about the Civil War is that you know I I I understand exactly what you're you're getting at, but the but the Civil War was was just about slavery. And just the well, the, and the the argument that it was about anything else is a is a kind of like yes, that's it's everything that they say is true, but it is a kind of revisionism to. Because the United States was fighting a war about slavery for 25 years before the Civil War, or for, for 50 years before the Civil War. Um, ultimately, yeah, you can look back and say that was about slavery because that was a, that was a thing that we were going to have to fight a bloody battle. Well, that's what we shot each other about. That's what, that's what we shot each other about. And, that, and, and, and the underlying causes, which, like you're saying, is this clash of culture between the cavaliers and the and the uh the quakers or whatever yes that's all true and it's all written in it but but and 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 maybe you could make an argument that all of these liberal projects of the 20th century have been incremental wars that have prevented what could have been a much bigger worse war in 1967, hmm. Hmm. it was it was plausible to people in 1967 that we were headed to a a, a conflict on the scale of the Civil War, in the sense that people were legitimately oh, you mean like this Watts riots that this yeah, is going to become legitimately like right. burning cities, fighting in the streets, insurrection. That must have been such a scary time for everybody really scary and and people you know and 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 what what hadn't happened was we hadn't had 40 years of talking about it to make it seem to make those ideas seem i mean even even the most uh the 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 biggest conservative zealot is familiar with the concept of uh, of sort of every liberal totem but at the at the time in 1967, I mean, you, there were there were great swaths of just normal American people that were still wrestling with the concept of of uh, conscientious objectors. Like, wait a minute, would it, why wouldn't you want to go fight for America in a war? Like, they it wasn't even they couldn't even get their heads around it. So, so maybe maybe we have been fighting these small battles, and it has released the pressure that would have built up to be to be a larger conflict. The civil war was inevitable and there wasn't a way they tried. They tried for the, for 30 years beforehand to legislate their way around the problem and, and concessions were made to the South. Like you wouldn't believe Hmm. we were, I mean the, the people in the North and Congress, you know, they went back and forth just like, Oh, I, would you like to have Thursday afternoons reserved for mint juleps? Well, we will make that national law if it will if 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 you will just concede that that maybe you know free blacks can go across Kansas without being like bull whipped by children. Oh, so and, and <laughs> it's, the, not, and it's the, not starting with like saying, and again, I should watch Lincoln again, but, but it's not starting with saying like tomorrow your daughter has to marry a Negro. It yeah. started with something much more simply like, can you just be less of a dick about this, this thing yeah, for people yeah. who well, aren't they, slaves? They were, I mean, they were arguing it in the, 
in the Constitutional Congress. I mean, they were arguing the, these questions all the way back, and the South was just was just contemptuous and immobile. And eventually, they never said they be, weren't dicks. It was yeah. gonna, it was going <laughs> to be a war. You know, the 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 British outlawed slavery in 1802 or something. So. So that so that whole like the southern argument that the civil war was really about states rights or whatever it is that people want to say it's about it wasn't it was about hmm. it was about that this was a thing that needed to be resolved and some people were just going to have to die over it and the reality is looking back at at America for the last 50 years in 1957 I can't imagine standing in that place and not maybe picturing that we were going to have to have another, that we were going to have to have a, a, a war every hundred years about this stuff. And somehow we, we fought a terrible cultural war, but somehow we avoided <laughs> taking up arms. And I mean, other conspiracy theories would theorists would say that it was because the CIA started a crack epidemic, but, you know, and, and the FBI definitely, like, worked really hard to get the Black Panthers to fight themselves. But the reality is we, we tried a lot of different things to move the, move the culture forward so we didn't have to fight a bruising revolution. I don't know. I you, know don't you know how uh, weed's illegal in the United States? Not in Washington. And then California passed medical marijuana in the 90s Hippies. and now in san francisco or you know in, in the bay area especially you can go out and you just there's just weed everywhere here weed but but here's the funny part so uh, there was uh you couldn't have had i again i'm not a i don't know lots of things but but you, you there's a pretty strong federal law against this and you could agree or disagree with it but then they came up with the california medical marijuana uh they, do the, they did this great thing years and years ago where they attached federal highway money to drug policy and if you wanted to make same thing with having to be 21 to buy alcohol yeah if you wanted to change those laws in your state that was fine but you would sacrifice all of your federal highway money that's shakespearean turned to shit it was it was (laughs) it was incredible it was an incredible no state dared cross the federal government because they were like yeah sure change your policy all you want but but now, now the beauty part is that they're trying now on a local level, you go down to the next level, and now on a local level, people are trying to legislate stuff like w- zoning for things like, um, you know, where you can have a pot dispensary. Oh, sure. And, and now the pot people are freaking out. Because they, they say it can't be within a half a mile of a school. Like, keep your hands, keep your hands, keep your hands off my weed law, hippie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're okay with, the, with with passing these backdoor laws for the thing that suits you, but like as soon as somebody in the neighborhood, oh, local, make it local. You can have uh, it's okay, it's it's cool. You can have Bong City set up next to the preschool or whatever. Fine, whatever. But now when somebody else, you know, sauce for the gander, now somebody else is saying, oh, actually, you know what? Let's use the law, and the law is going to be that there's going to be zoning on this and. You know, luckily, I think they're pretty confused, so hopefully it won't be a, a huge issue. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a map of, like, concentric circles around all the schools in San Francisco. And if, you know, if you can't build a pot dispensary within oh, yeah, whatever, yeah, 500 yeah, yeah. yards of a school, the closest pot dispensary you could build is somewhere, like, on the road to Sacramento. Well, it's also hard on sex offenders. 
Oh, right. And, Where uh, are they going to live? You know, peeing, you know um, uh, peeing outside, as you and I enjoy so much, yeah. you get caught at that, you might be a sex offender. Did you know that? It sounds like a Jeff uh, Foxworthy bit. You may, I didn't, I didn't you, know that. If you like to urinate on the side of a house, <laughs> you might be a sex offender. Many years ago, I was, uh, I was peeing outside with a friend as in a do. public park, as you do. And um, all of a sudden, there was a cop car there with its spotlight on, and it spotlighted <laughs> my friend. And for whatever reason, I was standing 15 feet away, which is which is the the so, so socially prescribed distance that you should stand from your friend mm-hmm. when you're peeing together in the dark in a park. But that 15 feet away, I was somehow out of the spotlight uh, aura, and the cops are spotlighting my buddy, and they're like, hey! And he's like, oh, shit! And I'm standing right there in the middle of a park, and they don't see me. And I finish peeing, and I zip up my pants, and I walk around a tree, like I head around. There's a tree next to me. I walk around it and come out from the other side and walk up as these two cops are getting out and arresting my friend. And I'm like, hey, fellas, what's going on? And my buddy's like, hey. And they literally handcuffed him. And put him in the police car and uh, drove off into the night. Is this in Seattle? Yeah. And I was like, oh, man. Shit. And my friend was like, dude, you got to help me out here. And I, <laughs> there was nothing I could do. Have we met? I, was, I, I wasn't going to say, hey, I was pissing too. And so I stood there and he was like, you know, come bail me out. And I was like, I don't have any money. <laughs> I'm being outdoors. <laughs> And, and he was like, hey, they that, should be a, car. that should and be he, a civil right. He was yelling at me, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just, I was just going from here to there. And the cops, you know, the cops never even looked at me. Anyway, what I'm worried about mm. ultimately is I have a house full of instruments. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that that does not present enough challenge to my daughter there's no friction that's right so music is all around her she is invited to play any instrument at any time she isn't going to develop any interest in it at all so you think about hiding them i'm thinking about making them all off limits to her you know the the famous story about the jacksons was that that dad jackson had a guitar and he said no one touch my guitar. I better not see anybody ever touch this guitar. <laughs> he would leave. And then Jermaine or whatever, like taught himself to play the guitar. And then little by little, all the Jacksons learned to play on this guitar. Hmm. And they hid it. They had to hide it from their dad. And he only discovered it when one day they broke a string and they didn't know how to fix it. And he came home and saw that they'd been playing his guitar and he was like, what's the story here? Here comes the and bell. Then, that, well, yeah. And I think he probably beat the shit out of him. But then eventually he discovered like, Oh shit. They're all, they're all amazing musicians. Hey, wait a minute. I might not have to work. I should have had a keyboard. So, you know, so <laughs> you think that's what he thought? You think he saw a meal ticket? <laughs> yeah. But the, the barrier to entry, Tito, go, go find that. Go find those drums. <laughs> Randy. The, the barrier to entry, there has to be one. You know, you, there has to be some... I, I totally get what you're saying. I difficult. mean, yeah, exactly. There's nothing There's nothing to it. It becomes like furniture. It would be like playing the couch. Right. Hmm. So, so, and that is why so many, like, hipster musicians 
they, you know, they raise their kids to be, to, you know, to be like groovesters and the kids just end up, I, I was about to say they end up being football players and, and cheerleaders, but really I have no evidence. That's like 72% on 72 cents on the dollar. I have no evidence that that happens. It <laughs> just you, seems like a good thing to say. Your daughter's going to end up being a cheerleader. Your daughter gets 72% of a guitar. Do you have hissing in theaters up there? You ever get hissing during the, uh, the trailers for a movie? No. Oh, we get hissing. It's, it's, it's a thing here. I think some people just do it because, you know, because it's a thing. It's like when you go through that one tunnel uh, by the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Everybody honks when they oh, go through the honk. tunnel. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you know. The, but the hissing is it, it really. It's I. I can't even tell if it's ironic anymore. No, there's no. You wouldn't in the Northwest. You would not make a public display like that without really upsetting people. <laughs> you get into the theater and you you identify which which half of the armrest is included in your personal space. Right. And then you get as quiet as you can. So you go to, for example, in your case, you go to a Holocaust movie and people are just chattering through the whole thing because that's their, uh, that's their civil right. Where's my parade? Hmm. So, uh, I need to pee soon and I, I'm indoors. I got civil war discrimination, women's rights, trumpets and allergies. And so what was the upshot? What was the upshot of your talk? Did you, do you feel like you, did you, uh, did you, were you able to make a point, uh, with yeah, the folks yeah, that resonated? I think, I think so. I got to the end and I said, you know, ask me your best questions. Like, let's hear it. Because I spent the second half of my talk saying, <laughs> what is the, what is the end goal? <laughs> you there, of- black lady with rickets. What is the end goal of making, of of forcing the issue of inclusiveness in rock music? What is, I mean, I understand, rock music has, for the whole length of its life, for the for its entire time, rock music has been a, a, a radicalizing force in the culture, mm-hmm. right? Rock music says, hey, we're going to integrate. Rock music says, hey, we're going to move our hips and we're going to show our belly buttons and we're going to talk about the war and we're going to talk about drugs and rock music has done it in advance of the rest of the culture it's always been radicalizing but now this this new realm in which rock music is its own mission field and people are turning inward and saying how can we make rock how can we make the music world more representative, more inclusive, more, how can we, how can we force the music world to be, you know, more diverse and in a way more of an institution. All those, all those other people in the business. And that was the, you know, that was the, that was the upshot was just like, you can't go into the arts and start I mean, you, then, then what you get is Marxist art. You get art that is, that doesn't offend anybody and it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't offend anybody and it isn't representative and people are not making art to, to, uh, to challenge or overturn. They are making art to satisfy re- requirements and they're making art to, uh, to appease and that is that ultimately isn't art it's design or it's 
you know, it's graphic art. Not to not to piss off any graphic artists that are mad. What are they going to do? Uh, throw a straight edge at you? <laughs> I think they they might do an illustration of me that's unflattering. <laughs> Your ass is big. <laughs> you ever seen Rushmore? Yes. I think when in doubt, you should do oh, uh, Herman, Blue, Herman Blue's... Oh, are they? I think you should do Herman Blue's speech in the chapel. Here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in your crosshairs and take them down. <laughs> Remember... They can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. <laughs> you could see, you could go and give that speech anywhere, and who yeah. can disagree? Because nobody yeah. thinks they're a rich boy. Yeah, take aim at the rich boys. Now you need a gun for that. You, I mean, maybe it's a philosophical uh, metaphor gun, but still, yeah, take aim at them with with your sarcasm. That's right. I invented sarcasm. Um. All right. Well, I'll let you go pee. Yeah. You got anything else? No. That's it. You don't, you don't have you don't have any kind of a solution for this. You don't have any kind of a tip for somebody. What if somebody's out there right now, John? And what if they're looking for your help? You've certainly created oh, I think the, I the think philosophical the is, foundation. The tip is, uh, or the you know the the answer is the is the same as as the one that you have been promulgating, which is don't look outward to to you know to, or rather change yourself first. Change your immediate family and your your small circle of friends second. And if that doesn't occupy you your entire life, I will be astonished. <laughs> but but try and get your you, office to agree on bagels. Good luck. Yeah, if you feel like you have completely like changed your way of living and your and your family's and your immediate circle of friends' way of living, then write a book about it because you would be an example to us all. I don't know. That, it seems like sympathy and empathy for your opponent is is the thing that's needed most now in in America, at least. Sympathy and empathy for your opponent, and a genuine desire to see what the what the underlying problem is, because we are not making the world a better place. The liberal project is. In in a lot of ways, God, it is working, but whew, I don't. But nobody nobody likes the feeling. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's it's so early. <laughs> we shouldn't even post this one. It's it's kinda, it's it's not fun.